Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 365, where we're going to finish The Wind Boy. So many great things happened last time, but not everything we need for a happy story. So, that's what we have to look forward to. But before we get to that, I did want to mention a podcast highlight. This is one I mentioned a really long time ago and have mentioned every so often now and then. Chop Bard. It is the cure for boring Shakespeare. And also, I want to say, incomprehensible Shakespeare and any other kind of problems you have with Shakespeare. What made me think of it is that I went last night to Shakespeare in the Park here in Dallas with my daughters and with a good friend and her daughter and we had a picnic and drank bubbly and even though it had been close to 100 degrees they have it in a spot where a good breeze goes through and where once it's dark it really cools off amazingly quickly they had done a production of the taming of the shrew in a couple weeks we'll go to see a comedy of errors but as i watched it and thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a really good production, by the way, which managed to balance out all the things Petruchio does to um, Catherine, to Kate, with an equal understanding on both parts. Somehow, these actors carried it off. The director did a really good job. If you're in Dallas and you're listening to this currently, definitely check it out. But I was thinking of all the things I've learned from Aaron Ziegler at Chopbard over the years, and it just made me want to go back and listen to some episodes. I haven't listened to all the plays he's done. So it made me kind of want to fill in some holes in the stuff I hadn't listened to yet. Also, what it made me think of is in the winter, they're going to do an inside production of Hamlet. And I do feel like I know Hamlet really well because I listened to Aaron's episodes on Hamlet twice. Once just when they came out, and then once when Scott and I at A Good Story is Hard to Find were going to talk about the Mel Gibson production of Hamlet. So I'm really looking forward to it with this enhanced knowledge because I was able to see how knowing what a play is about, reading a synopsis, Even reading over some of the dialogue is just not the same as watching everything come together in a live performance. So I definitely recommend Chopbard. They've done everything from Hamlet, as I mentioned, to Macbeth, Romeo and Juliet, on to some things like King Lear, some of the history plays. So there's a really good sprinkling in there of different kinds of plays that you can try. Aaron takes you through the scenes line by line sometimes if you need to, and does a really interesting look at taking us into the Shakespearean context, but also applying it to everyday life for us. So it's highly recommended. Now back to the Wind Boy. I was thinking of Rose Marie. She did know when Nan came to her after the little silver bell rang and woke her up. She knew what she had to do. Nan didn't tell her. Rosemary knew she had to confess. She had to do the right thing. Otherwise, poor Kay was going to be on the hook forever, and he already had enough against him as an immigrant and just somebody who was very different. So I really liked Rosemary being brave, knowing she had to overcome her fear of punishment and of her grandfather 
to do the right thing. And then she had to be physically brave and overcome more obstacles with that black, black darkness in the hallway. I was really impressed by that part of the story. That was an extra obstacle I did not expect. And it made Rosemarie a stronger and realer figure for me. Of course, I also really liked how Kay handled his humiliation. He kept reminding himself what he was doing it for. He knew his sister was suffering on his behalf, and that made him feel like he had to stand up even more, be even stronger. And I don't know, we just don't get many scenes of that kind of thing. People talk about bullying these days, and that's definitely something that should not happen. But to watch a child who's strong enough to handle it for the right reason stand up and do the right thing like that, that's a nice counterpoint to what Rosemarie did. He's taking public humiliation on someone else's behalf. That's a really admirable figure. So I enjoyed it. And of course, in the end, everything comes right. We get to wash dishes together. <laughs> which shows you how far removed from reality Rosemarie was. How fun! We never get to do this, and special treat, she gets to sweep the floor. Not something we consider a treat around our house, because we do it all the time. But everything is not quite right yet. All the things that are out of place, all the chaos that we have seen in the story, has not quite been put in order yet. So that's what we're going to get to with the end of the story. Enough talking. Let's dive in. Chapter 17. Detra Meets the Artist And when they got there, it was Nan who thought up the most wonderful things to play. They were games the children had never heard of before, and they were the greatest fun. Afterward, they could never play them over again, for somehow they could not remember how they had gone. That was strange, for at the time they had not seemed complicated, but simple as day. They found themselves in these games jumping farther than they had known they could jump, climbing higher, and hiding in more secret and smaller places that they would have thought of hiding in alone. But after a while, they grew tired of even these wonderful games and threw themselves down in the grassy center of the tulip garden to rest. Now, said Rosemarie, tell me more about the wind boy. But we have told you all, Kay answered. There is nothing more. Well, if he's real and not just a pretend game of yours, Rosemarie asked teasingly, why doesn't he come and play with us now? Why? I don't know. Perhaps he will. Perhaps he's been around all this time wanting to play with us. But Gentian shook her head. No, Kay, he's nowhere about. I've been looking for him all the afternoon. He hasn't come once. I would have seen him if he had. Well, now that he has his clear children playmates back, perhaps he won't want to come down here anymore. Perhaps he only came before because he was lonely, Kay said. Gentian did not answer that. She herself had been thinking exactly that thing for hours with this difference, that she had not had the heart to speak it. Let's try to see up into the clear land, 
Rosemarie suggested then. Why can't we see that other tulip garden that you say is just up there over this one? We could try, Kay answered, but it takes a special kind of looking to see it, doesn't it, Nan? How shall we look then? I don't know exactly. But Jenshin went there through the walls of Nan's attic room, you told me. How did you do that, Jenshin? By getting deep still. What is that? Jenshin could not explain. Now Nan, who had been lying on her back, nibbling a sweet grass blade, said, There are many, many ways of looking to see into the clear land. Let's lie quietly on our backs here for a little and just try. So the four playmates lay on their backs in the cool grass, sentineled about by many-colored tulips, and tried to see up into the clear land. But for all their looking and all their expectant stillness, it did not take shape for them in the blue spring air. Rose Marie was the first to grow impatient. She sat up. Oh, there is nothing but blue sky up there, she cried, and white clouds. I think it must have been all your imagining, Kay and Gentian. No, no, Kay protested. It was not imagining. You ought to see the statuette Mother has made of the wind boy. Then you'd know he was as real as you are. Oh, has your mother seen him too? Yes, of course. <laughs> but the funny thing about that is she does not remember she has. I should think that was a funny thing. Why, it's not possible. Should... Oh, but it is, Nan interrupted. She was still stretched on her back, looking up into the blue spring air. The truest and most important things are almost always those we have no words for. That is what Kay means by not remembering. Although Nan said this very gently, and it explained nothing to Rose Marie, still she at once believed her and laughed no more. Let's go and see the statuette, Gentian suggested then. You will love it, Rosemarie, just as we do. All right, only not for a little while. It's so cool and comfortable here in the grass, and I'm finding such funny pictures in the clouds. Wait a little. I will go and bring the statuette here instead, Nan said, getting up suddenly. It will be all the more beautiful out here with the sun on it. Now, neither Kay nor Gentian would have thought of touching their mother's work, but it never entered into their heads that Nan was doing anything wrong, and they were right to believe in her so. She ran away to fetch the statuette. Rosemarie, who was sitting up, watched her go. Running, she looks just like a relief of a dancing girl on an old Greek face in Grandfather's study, she said. She moves as though she were hearing music. Yes, she walks like that, too. I've often noticed, Kay agreed thoughtfully. Sometimes I almost hear it, too, the music, but never quite. After that, they lay quiet, saying no more until Nan returned with the statuette held very carefully before her. She stood it up in their midst in the grassy place. Rosemarie knelt in front of it. He is just as you described him, Kay, she cried. And he is shining, too. You didn't describe that. I have been wondering about that shining, Kay said. When he's just made out of gray plastilina, where does the shiningness come from? Why, that's his happiness, Nan tried to explain. It shines out through his face and even through his wings and body.
But the statuette can't be happy. It's only a statuette. That is true, but your mother could copy the happiness, and here it is. I wonder, Gentian said suddenly and softly, I wonder if that is what the clear land is, happiness, and this land down here is only the copy of that shining, even ourselves only copies? Oh, Gentian, Nan said, perhaps. You must ask the great artist up there sometime. I don't know. Rosemarie was still kneeling in front of the statuette. It was so alive-seeming she almost expected at any minute that the breeze would stir in its curls and its wings bend. As the minutes passed, and it still remained always ready for flight but never flying, her strange surprise grew. That will tell you how real and beautiful Detra had made him. They were all so absorbed, Gentian in her new searching thoughts, Rosemary in the statuette, Kay in Rosemary's delight, and Nan in them all, that they did not hear the artist coming down the path toward them. For some time he stood all unknown above them, but after a while he spoke. What is this? His voice rang with wonder and delight. Who brought this beautiful thing here? I did. Nan answered, no surprise in her face as she turned to face him. Is it yours? No, it is Detra's. She made it last night. She did not go to bed at all. I should think not. Who is Detra? Why, she is our mother, both Kay and Gentian cried together proudly. Why have I not known? Then, may I take it up? he asked of Nan. You may think it strange that the great artist should ask of Nan, the general housework girl, permission to touch a statuette he had found being played with by the children in his garden. But if you think so, that is because you have not seen the statuette, and you have not seen Nan. Yes, she nodded. Detra would like you to see it. Very gently. Yes, reverently. The artist raised the little statuette up and held it out before him in the afternoon sunlight. He turned it around and around slowly, his eyes narrow and intent, as Detra's eyes had been narrow and intent when she worked on it. Is she at home now, the artist? he asked finally. He spoke of Detra as the artist, the children's eyes shone with pride. No, she is at the factory, Nan answered. She works there all day, but she will come home soon. In a factory, the creator of this, working in a factory. Yes, they are refugees. The father who went to war has lost track of them, so Detra cannot stay at home with her children. She must earn bread and a roof for their heads in a factory. There is better work for her than that, the artist promised. She shall never go there again if I can help it. May I take this to her house for its safety and wait for her there? Nan nodded. She will be glad of your praise, she said. But she must have more than praise. The artist spoke to himself. She must be paid for this if she will let me have it. It shall be done into bronze and stand here just where I found it beside a fountain. Here in the tulip garden, the wind boy will stand always on tiptoe, about to fly. People will come far to see it. At that, Gentian clapped her hands. It was a soft clapping, but the artist heard and turned to look down at her. 
he said, smiling now for the first time. You were right all the time, little wind girl, when you assured me that the wind boy was real. Your mother has proved it for us forever that he is real, real as ourselves. Detra was very, very tired when she came home from the factory that evening. She had not been to bed at all the night before, you will remember. But when she turned in at her little gate, she braced her body, put back her shoulders, and made her step light to greet her children. She came in with a high head and her eyes smiling. But she stopped amazed at the door, for there rising to meet her was the artist. His head topped with its mass of gray curls just escaping the low ceiling of the little room. In his hand, he still held carefully the wind boy. He could not let it go. Good evening, said Detra. Good evening, answered the artist. Detra untied her cape at the neck and dropped it beside her onto a chair. In the cape and in the shadow of the room, she had looked like a tired working woman. But now, without the dark garment and in the light of the candles that Nan had just brought in, she was herself, the self the children always saw. Her wide, frank eyes, her high-held head, her straight, slim body made her look like a brighter and human candle. The artist bowed his head over the statuette. This is beauty, he said. Yes, I know, Detra replied tranquilly. I saw so clearly last night that I stayed up all night to work. I want to buy it of you for my tulip garden. And then Detra and the artist sat down on the bench under the window and talked. Nan was getting supper and setting the table, but it did not interrupt the artists, for she passed back and forth as softly as a shadow. Outside the door, under the cherry tree, Kay and Gentian and Rosemarie had gone to play but the sound of their laughter did not disturb the artist and Detra either. When you have created a beautiful thing, that is happiness. But the next happiness is to find someone who understands what you have done and knows that it is beautiful. Detra had both. But at last supper was ready and the children had come in. Rose Marie stood by her grandfather. He got up. I shall share this with the artists of the world, he said. Tomorrow all the papers shall have news of your genius and its promise. Then your husband, if only he is alive and searching, must come upon your name and find you. I have been thinking of that all the time you were talking, Detra answered. And if he does find us now, we shall take this money you are paying for the wind boy and buy the meadows behind this house, and he will turn them into the three nurseries he has always wanted. Then we shall live on here in our adopted country, for there is nothing left in the old for us. The artist nodded, well pleased with the plan. I shall send my wires and cables at once, he promised. Tomorrow the world will know that here in this little brown house dwells a new great artist. If your husband is alive, he must hear or read your name and come. That night the little brown house, set like a stepping stone to the artist's great one, could scarcely hold its happiness. At last the three had reason to hope that Hazar would find them. Soon the artist had been so sure they had had no one to help them before. 
but Gentian awoke in the night to remember the wind boy. He had said he liked her best. He had kissed her. He had been a perfect playmate. But now he had forgotten and was staying away in the clear country with the clear children. In spite of all her happiness, Gentian's blue eyes in the dark were touched with puzzled wonder. Chapter 18 Comrades The artist was true to his word. While the family in the little brown cottage slept, the telegraph wires and the radio waves, and even the great cables under the oceans, were busy with the news. Our greatest living artist has discovered a genius, a new and entirely unknown sculptress. He has bought a statuette from her and paid a fabulous sum for it. She is a refugee living with her children at his very door and has lived there for a year without his knowing about her work. Then came her full name and her story. By morning, all the papers in the country had the story, and many printed it in headlines on their front pages. The people living in the artist's village could hardly believe their eyes when they read. Their surprise and excitement were unbounded. Why, they had seen Detra every morning going to work in her dark cape and returning like any working woman tired at evening. There had been no sign about her of this, or if there had been a sign, they had failed to see it. Their curiosity led some of them, even so early in the morning, to go out and walk down the street to take a good look at the little brown cottage that now housed so much fame. There was even pride in their gaze, for after all, Detra was one of them, one of their village. And when Kay and Gentian, with Rosemarie, ran by on their way to school, the villagers looked after them thoughtfully. Well, things will be different for those children after this, they said wisely, nodding their heads at one another. And I am not sorry for better mannered or brighter children you would go far to find. As for Detra, she went to her work that morning as usual, for she meant to tell her employer about her good fortune and give him a fair chance to replace her. But her feet today sped lightly toward her task, and she walked like a princess. Not as a proud princess, you must know, but as a happy one. For she had a strong hope that somehow, somewhere, Hazar, the children's father, would read the news and so find her at last. And it did happen just as she hoped. In a city not far away, that very morning, a man with copper-colored hair and eyes blue as the sea stopped at a corner to read the headlines of the newspapers displayed there on a stand. And immediately the name Detra shone out for him in rainbow lettering. It was his joy that made the lettering rainbow, of course, for it was just in printer's ink for ordinary eyes. From that minute... That copper-haired young man moved as in a cloud. For that young man was Hazar, the children's father. He had traced his wife and his children to this country directly after the war, and since then he had been wandering from city to city seeking them. He had no money to advertise with, any more than had Detra. The war had left him penniless and without work. So he could only tramp from city to city, doing odd jobs wherever he could get them but he thought little about the jobs, for his real work was his searching. 
His eyes were always searching, searching among crowds in all the poorer sections of the cities, and he would stand outside of stores and factories at the close of the working day, hoping that Detra might come out of some dark door and see him waiting there. And then at the noon hour, he would wait in the same way at the doors of school buildings. His blue eyes had grown haggard watching at the school doors for two little coppery heads. But now that was ended. He was a young god striding away out of the city toward the road that led to the artist's village. People who had never given him a glance before in his shabby workman's clothes and with his haggard seeking eyes now turned to stare after him as he passed. But though it would not have taken him long by train, it was long to walk, and Hazar was a day and a night in coming to the village. That day Nan had spent in making the little brown house spick and span from top to bottom, for although she had not yet told Detra, she knew that her work here was finished. The mountains were calling her back. Kay and Gentian in school at their desks and playing at recess time and all the afternoon as they played with Rosemary in her grandfather's gardens often lifted their heads to listen, for they thought they heard their father calling their names. When bedtime came again, Detra and the children, and even Nan, slept but fitfully. They were so alive with their expectations. And all during breakfast, the children talked of nothing but their father. Will he come today? Do you think he might come today? But Detra, whose heart was beating even faster than her children, said, No, no, hush, we must not expect him so soon. Why, he may be across the ocean, across the world from us. But in spite of those sensible words, at every step that Detra heard, she turned her head to listen. Would it turn in at the little swinging gate? And the children listened with her. Detra's employer had found someone at once to take Detra's place, and so she was to be at home today and all day and every day. It was glorious for the children. But the glory faded, vanished for a little while when Nan, after she had done the dishes and put the house in order, went up to her room and came down with her knotted purple bundle. Detra looked at her in surprise. Why, Nan, you're not going to go away from us. Not now. Nan nodded. There is nothing left here for me to do, she said. I cannot stay where there is no work. Detra got up from the bench under the window where she had been sitting arranging fresh tulips in the bowl. She looked at Nan earnestly and steadily. She did not say, but there is work, Nan. The house to keep clean, the meals to cook, dishes to wash. Please stay on to do these things for us. No, it did not enter Detra's head to utter such foolishness. For Detra, now for the first time, began to understand about Nan and what she might be. That had not been the work she had left her mountains to do. She had come to help Detra toward happiness. And now Detra was happy, and all was well with her and the children. But the children were dismayed. They cried, Oh, please, please, Nan, don't go away and leave us. You must never do that. Nan turned to them, smiling. Why, unless I go back to the mountains, then how can you come to visit me there? And that is what I want you to do, soon. Their hearts were eased. Detra at last said, 
Are you a good fairy, Nan? Is that what you are? No, I am not a fairy. But she answered gravely, as though in reply to a sensible question, as though she might very well have been a fairy. Only it happened that she was not. I am just a girl from the mountains. Detra asked no more, and Nan moved toward the door. Kay and Gentian heard the music that she walked to then. There could be no doubt about it this time, though it was faint and far. Gentian ran after her. Oh, may I have one last peep at the starry brightness? she begged. Nan held the purple bundle to her. Gentian parted the sides a little and looked in. Yes, there was the blue shining with its stars. Gentian bent above the purple bundle, looking into the sky. If she had not remembered her own bit of sky folded away upstairs in her drawer, she could never have done with looking now. When she lifted her face, her eyes had caught the reflection of the stars. Nan tied her bundle a little tighter then, so that no one as she passed along the street might catch a glimpse of the stars or suspect what wonderful thing was tied away there. Then she said goodbye. The children clung to her as far as the gate and stood watching there while she went away down the street. But they could not be unhappy over her going, for this thing was true about Nan. No one could ever be unhappy because of her. But they stayed swinging on the gate, silent and thoughtful after she had gone around the corner. A little way around the corner, as Nan walked to the sound of that music, faint and far, she met a young man. He was striding along with the morning sun in his eyes. His hair was a flame of copper. Nan could not help knowing at once that it was the children's father, Hazar, nearing the end of his search. She spoke to him, coming to a stand before him on the sidewalk. But his eyes were full of the morning sun, rather blinded, and it seemed to him that it was only a voice in the street speaking to him out of the sunlight. He could never remember afterwards having seen Nan, but he remembered her words. If you are looking for Detra's little brown cottage, it is just around that corner, and Gentian and Kay are out in front, swinging on the gate. The young man did not even thank her. For, you see, he never realized until afterwards the children told him so that a young girl must have stopped to give him the direction. He truly thought it was only a voice out of the sunshine, the morning sunshine that was full in his eyes. But he heard the words well enough, and suddenly he started running. He ran around the corner as fast as his long legs would take him, and the next minute both the children on the gate had uttered shrill, glad cries that brought Detra to the door. When she got there, she saw Hazar with Gentian and Kay tight in his arms as though he would never let them go. And Detra cried out too and ran down the walk. But Hazar was quicker than she. He let the children go and met her halfway from the door. The artist at that minute was coming through the hole in the hedge. He had made it larger for convenience the day before. He was coming for a morning call, but he stopped short now, and the morning sunshine got into his eyes, or something did, for he saw no more but turned away and waited until later for his visit to the little brown house. 
That was a marvelous day for Kay and Genshin. They held to their father's hands, leaned against him whenever he stood still, and followed him about like shadows. Most of the morning they wandered over the meadows at the back of the house, while their father and Detra talked about the young tree nurseries that he was to grow there. The children were so happy they were almost silent. As for Detra, they looked at her wonderingly again and again, for she did not seem like their mother at all now. She was like a wide-eyed young girl listening to a fairy tale. They had all forgotten about school, of course, but no one ever blamed them for that. In the afternoon, father and mother took a bench out under the cherry tree. The children sat in their feet at the grass. It was then that they noticed the policeman walking back and forth past the gate, pausing irresolutely each time as though he would like to come in. About the twentieth time this happened, Hazar called to him, Do you want anything, policeman? At that, the policeman took courage and pushed open the gate. It's welcome you are to this city, he said to Hazar, for he knew very well who he was, and he meant his welcome heartily. But then he turned to Detra and asked in a hesitating voice, Has your girl left you? I saw her on the street with a bundle this morning, and though I have passed the house often since, I have caught no sight of her about. Nan, yes, she has gone back to the mountains. Came a pause. While the children could see, this was sorry news for the big policeman. Then he said shortly, Well, with a man in the house and all, I suppose the work might very well be too hard for a slip of a girl like that. No, indeed. Detra had answered, laughing. She had not noticed his sorriness. It was just because the work was too easy that she left us. She thought she could no longer find enough to do. The policeman shook his head. He could not understand at all. He asked, Then will you kindly let me have her address? I might be taking a trip to the mountains some day. Her address? Detra and the children looked at one another in sudden bewilderment. How could they ever have neglected to ask Nan for that? Why, just Nan the mountains would never be enough, of course. No one could find her that way. Detra looked at the policeman almost ashamedly. I never thought to ask her for it, she owned. The policeman stared. Never thought to ask. Don't you know at all where she's gone to? Just that she's gone back to the mountains. Which mountains? Why, I see now that I don't know that. But I always supposed the purple mountains, the ones we see out there below the meadows and the wood. Yes, that's what I thought too, the policeman answered. But that isn't enough to find her by, and there was something in particular I had to say to her. No one could overlook the trouble in his face now. Gentian suddenly stood up and took his hand. Yes, Jinchin took the policeman's hand, the big hand that had gripped Kay by the shoulder so roughly. She said softly but surely, her blue eyes looking confidently up into his. She promised that Kay and I were to go to the mountains to visit her soon. That means she will let us know where she lives when that time comes. Perhaps she will let you know, too. The policeman, in some strange, deep way, was comforted. It was as though Nan herself had promised him through Gentian's voice. And so he turned back to his tramping of the peaceful village streets, 
with his trouble changed into thoughtfulness. When the policeman had gone, the artist came through the hole in the hedge. Then he and Hazar and Detra put their heads together in a very grown-up way to make plans for the future of Detra's art and Hazar's tree nurseries. The children lost interest at that, and they were glad to hear Rosemarie calling them, although they had heard her many times before that afternoon without answering. She was playing with some of their schoolmates over the lilac hedge on the artist's lawn. The lawn was a sea, and the sundial was a pirate ship. Rosemarie was the captain. "'Come along, Kay and Gentian,' she called. "'We're on the track of hidden treasure.' So Kay left his father's side and ran away to be a pirate. But Gentian got no farther than the door. There she suddenly had no heart for play and sat down on the doorstone. "'Aren't you coming?' Kay called back to her in surprise from over the hedge. By and by I'll come, perhaps. Not now. So the pirates went dashing off after hidden treasure without her. Now she could think the thought that had been knocking at the door of her mind through the day, under all the happiness of her father's return. It was, It isn't fair that the wind boy should stay away so. I couldn't give him up for Kay and all those others. But he gave me up the minute he got his clear comrades back again. After a time, the artist came out of the door to go home. All plans for Hazar's nursery settled. But he stopped for a minute by Gentian to say, Why aren't you off with Kay and Rosemarie, little wind girl? Or are you waiting here for your wind boy? No, I'm not waiting for him, Gentian answered, looking up rather mournfully at the artist. He doesn't come to play any more. The artist's face grew rueful. Is that because I have taken him away for a while? But soon he will be back, you know, all done into bronze, life-sized, and out in the tulip garden. He will play with you then, won't he? No, I didn't mean the statue. I mean the real wind boy up in the clear village. The one mother copied. It's him I've lost. I'm sorry, the artist said to that. But perhaps his wings will bring him back down to you yet. Who knows? The artist was so fond of his little wind girl already that it troubled him to see her sad. When he had gone, Gentian suddenly thought, Well, anyway, I have my starry brightness. I can run up and see that. And she did get up and go softly into the house. Through the open sitting room, she saw her mother and father sitting on the bench under the window. They were looking at each other over the bowl of tulips, which was still there, saying nothing but smiling. Gentian went past on tiptoe. They are glad to be alone, she thought. When she got up to her mother's room and had opened her own bottom drawer, she knelt before it on the floor, looking deep, deep into the starry depths. As she looked, her thoughts cleared. They cleared until they were crystal clear, and this is what came into their clearness. How foolish I am! Of course the wind boy will come back. He is my comrade. He wouldn't forget me just because he was happy. He would remember all the more. He would remember all the more. She was herself again. Lightheartedly, she closed the drawer and jumped up. I'll just go and play pirate after all, she thought. Perhaps while we're playing, the wind boy will come. Sometime, anyway. But now that she was standing, she saw that she was through into the clear land. 
The light was not sunlight anymore, but the crystal clearer light of the higher village. And again, she was alone in a room of the house belonging to the twilight girl. She looked toward the window. There were the cherry tree boughs, all aflower with pink and white cherry blossoms. Not the boughs of the cherry tree that stood outside the door of her mother's little brown house, but the boughs of the other cherry tree above it in the clear air. The cherry blossoms down there were still in bud, but these up here were full-blown. And there, among the cherry blossoms on a swaying bough, waited the wind boy. She knew he was waiting, by the droop of his wings and the expression of his face. But it was not the wind boy as she had seen him first. Now the light across his brow was clear. He was wearing silver sandals like her own. He did not see her standing at the window. He was looking down through the blossoming branches as though he expected her to come up that way. Oh, wind boy, she called. Here I am. I have come. He started up looking about. Laughing, she jumped over the windowsill and went running to him through the blue air. The wind boy made room for her, balancing on the trembling bough. It took you long enough, he said, holding her hands. It's been two whole days. Oh, but I was looking for you all that time down in our village. You see, I didn't know how to get up here. My coming just has to happen. I can do nothing about it, but you could come down to me any time. And I did go down, of course, many, many times, but I couldn't get you to see me. Not see you? I was looking for you every minute, even today with father there. Yes, you were looking for me, but were you believing in me? Believing in you? Of course. Why, I've always known you were real as real, no matter how much anyone calls you a dream. Oh, that kind of real, yes, that is nothing. You couldn't help knowing that, could you? I mean, were you believing in the real myself, the comrading part of me? Gentian dropped her head. No, that is what I had stopped believing in she owned. I had stopped believing that you were my comrade. I thought you wanted only your clear children playmates now. The wind boy smiled. Well, that tells us then why you had to come up here to find me. I could never have got to you there with such silly thoughts in your head. But you've come at last, and it's all right. We are comrades. He stepped toward her on the bow. His purple eyes were close above hers. Early morning purple. They kissed each other on the cheeks. That sealed their comradeship past any more befogging. Where are the clear children? Gentian asked. Why are you alone? I was only waiting for you. They're over in the wood by the spring somewhere looking for flowers. We'll go find them. But you've never been to the spring, have you? There are little gray stones in the bottom. They're gray to your first glance, but after a while... Yes, I know. Then they are all colors. Oh, you've been there the wind boy cried, disappointed that he was not to be the first to show her. No, I do not think I was there, but I saw you there. You were with my mother. She was working on the statuette all the time she was talking to you. She was trying to make you smile. Yes, she was telling me stories, stories you had told her, she said. But where were you? Why didn't we know you were near? I was only looking through the spring, the one below. Neither you nor mother could see me nor hear me when I called, and I could not hear your words either, though I saw your lips moving. The wind boy shuddered. That must have been horrid, strange and horrid. 
Yes, it was. Well, it's nothing like that this time. You're here now, safe and sound in the clear land. Aziel will be waiting by the spring to see if you came. She thought you would surely find the way. Aziel, oh, I'm glad. Come, let's go. Genshin and the wind boy ran away fleetly then, out paths of blue air toward the clear spring in the clear woods. And the wind boy spread his wings so wide as they went that I lost sight of Genshin behind their purple. The End